The reading today comes from Romans chapter 11, uh, verses 25 through 36. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. And before I read, I would remind you that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Romans chapter 11, 25 through 36. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sam. We come now to the last passage in this middle section of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, which has been addressing the question of Israel. What about Israel? Has God's Old Testament promise to Israel failed? Has God rejected his people, Israel? Not only then, but throughout history, Israel has been a battered people. Even in the last week, We are aware that Israel is under attack again. With all that Israel has suffered, we'd be right to ask why, or perhaps even how, does Israel still exist? And one pastor said it like this, Pharaoh tried to drown them, but they could not be drowned. Nebuchadnezzar tried to burn them, but they could not be burned. Haman tried to hang them, But it was of no avail. All the nations of the earth have persecuted them, but here they are. Why? Because of God's promise. Because God made an everlasting covenant with them to be an everlasting nation. Or we might say because of God's plan of salvation accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ, and that runs through Israel. So this question asks, so this section of Romans asks, what about Israel? 
Has God moved past Israel? Is he done with Israel? Has he already fulfilled his promises to Israel so that now he is on to the New Testament church? Well, the Old Testament promise was not that God would forsake his people Israel, that he would substitute other nations as the object of his saving love. No, beloved, his promise was that he would include all the nations under the canopy of his saving mercy first shown and given to Israel. The Lord's promise to Israel was that through her and not apart from her, the promise would be extended to all peoples. So your salvation and God's promise to Israel are inseparably connected. And because God chose Israel, he called Abraham. And thus he made a covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, the patriarchs, our forefathers, in irrevocable covenant. So take note of this, beloved, because the hope of the gospel rests upon God's faithfulness to this covenant, upon God's faithfulness to Israel. Indeed, upon this rests the hope of your salvation today and the salvation of your children. So in this closing section of Romans 11, prior to the doxology at the end, Lord willing, Colin will preach on that section next week. But I thought we had to at least read it this week because it's Paul's response to what he's proclaimed. So in this closing section of Romans 11, prior to that doxology, we see that there is one way to be saved for both Jew and Gentile. We see that all Israel will be saved. And then I have to ask, will you be saved? Or to put it another way, Paul tells us, you have been and are disobedient. The question is, have you received God's mercy? So we begin with this truth. There is only one way to be saved for both Jew and Gentile. This closing section that Sam read for us from Romans 11 is about salvation. And Paul doesn't want us to miss this. He doesn't want us to be unaware of it. So in verse 25, he says, the fullness of the Gentiles will come in. He's talking about their salvation. In verse 26, he says, all Israel will be saved. And then in verse 32, he says, well, he talks about God having mercy on all, both Jew and Gentile. And then he erupts into this doxology, this praise to God. Now here in this section, again, Paul quotes from the Old Testament, as he has done over and over and over again. This time he turns to Isaiah 59, where he says, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. My covenant with them. This is God's promise to do something. So this work of salvation comes at God's initiative. And the covenant, the promise, is this. God will take away our sins through his son, Jesus Christ. Beloved, God is the only one who can take away sins. We heard that earlier from Isaiah chapter 45, where God says through the prophet, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. 
So God and God alone is able to make the way of salvation. And this is the only way of salvation for both Jews and Gentiles. It's the only way of salvation for every one of you here today. Through Jesus Christ. So we remember God's promises. We remember his covenant in the sacraments. The Lord's Supper and baptism. Right in the Lord's Supper, in just a few moments, we'll hear these words. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So we remember that promise. God will take away our sins. How? One way and one way only. Through the shed blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. And we also remember his promise that Jesus is coming again. Not to deal with our sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So in the Lord's Supper, in this sacrament, we focus on what God has done and what he has promised to do yet in the future. But we also remember God's promise, his covenant in baptism. This focus on what God has promised to do at great cost to himself. He has promised to save all those who trust in him. How? The water of baptism shows us by washing away our sins through the shed blood of his own son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And this is the one and only way to be saved. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The prophet Isaiah says that your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And so, beloved, your sins must be taken away. They must be forgiven if you are to be reconciled to God, if you are to have peace with God, if you're to be a child of God and be welcomed into his eternal kingdom in heaven, your sins must be taken away. If your sins are not taken away, the Bible tells us that you will then receive God's just punishment for them. Eternal separation from God in the fire of hell. And the Bible tells us that we cannot take away our sins by our good deeds. There's nothing that we can do to atone for our own sins. So either you must pay for your sins in hell or Jesus will take them from you. And he will pay the price of God's just wrath for them in his own death and burial. For Jesus is the only one who is able to suffer the penalty for sin in his own body and come out victorious. He's the only one that is able to withstand God's wrath. We cannot. So I would urge you this morning once again to lay your sins on Jesus and receive his mercy his salvation. This is the only way that any way, anyone is saved. This is the way that the fullness of Gentiles will come in. And this is the way that all Israel will be saved. So now we come to that important statement in verse 26. Paul says, all Israel will be saved. Now what does that mean? That's the million dollar question we've all been waiting to answer. Well, in general... There are three interpretations that are accepted as true to the text in some way. So we, we, as we go through this, 
I would say this is one of those teachings that we hold with an open hand, which means that there are godly men and women who hold different opinions on it, who know and love Jesus, and we will have perfect fellowship with them in heaven. But here's the view. So first of all, there are some who say all Israel will be saved. It simply means Paul's referring to the church as it is today. All elect people, both Jews and Gentiles, will be saved. This is the view that John Calvin held in his day. And this is the view that I held until recently. Until I just studied through this book of Romans over the last several months. Now normally I would defer to John Calvin. But not here. It doesn't seem to fit the context of Romans 9 through 11, or especially verses 25 and 26. Now remember, if you're part of the proclamation family, I gave you a homework assignment when we came to the section, Romans 9, at the beginning. I said, read Romans 9 through 11 in one sitting, maybe multiple times, and look for every time Paul mentions Israel. It's 11 times or so. And every time he does, he's using Israel to make a clear distinction between Israel and the Gentiles, including In the immediate context, our context today, verses 25 and 26, Paul says, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. So if all Israel simply means all elect Jews and Gentiles, then this comparison doesn't make much sense. It's it's very anticlimactic. But that's one view. That's generally seen as an acceptable view. A second one, for those of you who care about names like this, the second view is held by Herman Bovink, Anthony Hukuma, Louis Burkhoff, William Hendrickson, O. Palmer Robinson. Again, these are people that I have learned a lot from, and normally I defer to them as well. I think this is a better view, but still not quite there. But this view says that all Israel will be saved is a reference to the total number of the elect people from Israel through all time. So any Jew that has ever been saved, chosen by God for salvation, that's what it means when it says all Israel will be saved. Now we come to the third view, the correct view. (laughs) In various forms. Now it can get complicated. Again, I'll throw out some names for those who care about this. Charles Hodge, Gerhardus Voss, John Murray, Douglas Moo, Thomas Schreiner. They're among the, the men that hold to this view. When Paul says all Israel will be saved, he's referring to, I would say it like this, both the present in his time as he's writing, the present and future conversion of elect ethnic Israel, including a large number of Israelites, though not every. Israelites. He's referring to this coming conversion within the redemptive purposes of God. So rather than go into all the nuances of this view, I just want to show you from the context why I think this is what Paul's referring to. And, and hopefully we'll see why it would lead Paul to erupt in this great praise to God, the doxology at the end of this chapter. So Paul says, all Israel will be saved. I believe he's referring to all ethnic Israel saved between the first and second coming of Christ. So not those who were saved before Christ came. There were many who were saved before Christ came, and they're saved in the same way we are, by trusting in the Messiah to pay for their sins. But that's not what Paul is referring to in this view. 
But he's referring to those who are saved between the first and second coming of Christ. The period of history that we are in right now. The already, not yet. Already Christ has come, not yet has he returned a second time. So I don't think he's referring to one generation of Israelites saved at one particular time. Some say perhaps at the end of the age or in a coming millennium. I don't think that's what he's saying. Although I do think Paul means all Israel will be saved to include some form of a mass conversion of Israelites, we might say. Now, if you are confused, let me clarify. This is what I think and what I believe Paul is teaching. All Israel will be saved refers to all elect people, all those God has chosen from ethnic Israel between the first and second comings of Christ, which also likely includes at some set period of time, a large scale conversion that would be noticeable. So let's see it in the context and, and to do that fully, we have to go back. So I hope you brought your Bibles with you this morning or you have access to the Bible because I'm going to refer to parts of Romans 11 that are not printed in your worship guide. The proclamation family already knows this. Sorry if they didn't give a heads up to the guests that are here this morning. But proclamation family, you should be bringing the full Bible with you every Sunday. All right, so Romans 11, verse 11, Paul says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And Paul says, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? That hope, the full inclusion of Israel, does not seem to be hypothetical here. They did trespass against God. They did fail. That was real, a real event. And since that brought riches, salvation to the Gentiles, it seems now that Paul is proclaiming this great hope. Just wait until you see what the full inclusion of Israel means. It doesn't seem hypothetical. It seems hope-filled. It seems to point to a future salvation for ethnic Israel, a reason for us to praise God. Now, not only that, but Paul seems to be then building up to this. So if you look at verse 23, we have the possibility of a future Jewish conversion, where Paul says God is able to graft them in again. So it's possible. But then in verse 24, we move from possible to probable. We have the probability of a time of future Jewish conversions. When Paul says, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So it's possible, it's probable. And then verse 26, we have the certainty of a time of future Jewish salvation when Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved. In verse 25, he had said, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. And in this way, that seems to me, seems to mean in this manner, or in the way that Paul is describing the fullness of the Gentiles will lead to the salvation of Israel. Now, when Paul says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, that does not necessarily signal 
a specific time reference. It can. It is a temporal marker. That is, it is a reference to time. But Paul does not tell us exactly when or what time. So how do we determine that? Well, one way is to look for other time markers in the context. Always look in the surrounding context to see what you can learn. And we find that in verses 30 and 31. Paul writes, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Now, now, now. So the question is, is all Israel being saved now, or is this a future event? Yes. The answer is both. Now is this time between the first and second coming of Christ, the already not yet time. And Paul sees this already incurring in his ministry, his lifetime. In fact, he's working to make it happen, as we should. I'll mention that later. But in verse 13 and 14, Paul magnifies his ministry to the Gentiles. Why? Because he wants to save his fellow Jews. Essentially, he's doing that to make this happen. And it is happening. It was happening then, it's happening now, and it will happen in the future. And I believe it will include, at some point, salvation of the Jews on some kind of grand scale. Why do I say that? Not just because we want it, right? But because the rejection of the Jews in Paul's day, it did not involve every ethnic Jew. Paul himself is an example of that, remember? And the salvation of the Jews in the future day, I don't believe it likewise will necessarily involve every ethnic individual Jewish person. But it does seem to be a comparative event. Paul seems to be saying, as the masses of the Jews reject Christ now in his day, so too the masses of the Jews will receive Christ in a day to come. Why? Because God. Because God made a covenant Because God made a promise. And what does Paul say in this context? The gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. That means they're final. They cannot be changed. They cannot be reversed. God doesn't go back on his promises. He's not crossing his fingers behind his back. He means what he says. He says what he means. God is the one who is faithful 100%. Now, Paul doesn't exactly say when this is going to happen. He doesn't tell us how this is going to happen other than it's going to happen through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, faith in Christ. So we can't say exactly when or how. Paul simply says it's coming. All Israel will be saved. And he says it will be accomplished by Jesus Christ, the deliverer who comes from Zion and banishes ungodliness, and takes away our sins, forgives our sins. Beloved, God will be faithful to his promises to our forefathers, and this is great news for us because it means he'll also be faithful to his promises to us. There is great hope for Israel, and there is great hope for all who trust in Christ. Now, how how providential is it that today we have both sacraments as part of our service? 
baptism and the Lord's Supper. These visible signs of God's covenant promises. They proclaim God's salvation to us. And so we must ask this question. Will you be saved? Or to put it another way. This may be hard to hear at first, but it is true. Each one of you, including myself, including Paul who wrote this, you have been and you are disobedient. The true million dollar question is, have you received mercy? You have been disobedient. You are disobedient. You need mercy. It's offered to you this very day. Have you received it? In verse 30 and 31, Paul says that the Gentiles were disobedient. And so in his day, that included everyone who was not Jewish. It includes many of us here today. He says Israel was disobedient. So that included everyone else. So he's essentially saying all the world is disobedient. All kinds of people. What's the common theme? Disobedience. And what is the common response from the holy God. Mercy. Mercy. Beloved, never believe anything about yourself or about God that makes his grace or mercy to you seem anything less than astonishing. It is astonishing that God has mercy on all kinds of people. But that's what Paul says. Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience, that means Jew and Gentile, all kinds of people, all people in the world, that he, have, that he may have mercy on all, on Jew and Gentile, all kinds of people. Paul is not teaching universalism here, that every single person will receive mercy and be saved. He's teaching the universal offer of salvation. That God will have mercy on every person who cries out to him for mercy. On people from every nation, on both Jews and Gentiles. We have all been disobedient and we all deserve to be cut off from Christ forever. And the only way to salvation is for God to respond to our disobedience, to my disobedience, to your disobedience with his abundant mercy. For God himself to take away our sins. And the only way that can be done is if he gives his own son to die in your place for your sins where you deserve to be. Christ took it. He's done it and he will do it through his son this very day. So the question for you today is how will you now respond? I'm asking each one of you, will you obey the gospel? You see the intent in all of this? And Paul proclaiming this mystery of God's plan to save both Israel and the Gentiles. The intent is not only glory and praise to God, which it is. But it is also our salvation. Your salvation. That you, that every one of you, this very moment would cry out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. We all need mercy from God every day. Apart from his mercy, we will perish. But many of us think we don't need God's mercy. Our pride keeps us from coming to Christ. We're like the little toddler who thinks he can do everything by himself. 
But just as a parent at times may need to say a firm no to their toddler for their own good, for their own safety, God says a firm no to the proud and the proud way of life. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And you do not want God to be opposed to you. You want to receive his bounteous grace. Now on the other hand, perhaps you think you are too far gone for God's mercy. You think you're too big of a failure, too big of a sinner. God couldn't possibly forgive you. He couldn't possibly change you. Or maybe you think you've used up your allotment of his mercy for you. And if that's what you think today, you need to hear the words of Jesus You need to know that you are the exact kind of person that Jesus came for, that he died for. Jesus, when he came, he said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And what does Paul say? Paul says, God has consigned all to disobedience. So all are needy. We are all disobedient, every one of us, in order that he may have mercy on all. So we say all are welcome. God's mercy is for you. God delights to shower mercy upon his repentant people. So yes, there's great hope for Israel, for their future salvation. But don't miss the mercy of God offered and available to you this very day. Will you be saved? You have been and you are disobedient. Have you received mercy? You can receive God's mercy Right here, right now. All you need to do is come to God through Jesus. And you will know his mercy. And if you have done this, as many of you have, and we continue to do day by day, because we need his mercy every day, the sign, the fruit that you receive mercy, that you are indeed saved, you continue with the help of the Holy Spirit to turn from disobedience to obedience. You obey the gospel call to repent and believe in Christ. And so you repent of your sin. You admit that your own personal sin brings God's just condemnation. But you rejoice and you trust that God will take away your sins through the death of his own son, Jesus Christ. And so you cry out to God for mercy through Christ and you turn from your sin to God with hatred for your sin and new love for your savior. And that love now controls your life so such that you you no longer live for yourself, your own glory, your own pleasures. You know that you are not your own, but you live for the glory of God. Or as Paul says in Romans 12, which we're Lord willing getting to soon, in view of God's mercy, you offer your very life as a living sacrifice to God. And not only that, but you follow the example in the Gospels and you joyfully tell others about this God of mercy. How much he has done for you and how he has had mercy on your soul. In a world, in the history of the world which continues today, in which there is still a great deal of anti-Semitism, where Israel is often under attack, Let us never forget that God has not rejected his ancient covenant people. That he still has a purpose for his beloved Israel. And so, while there is absolutely no room for any kind of anti-Semitism at all, 
any kind of racism at all. There is all kinds of room for proclaiming Christ, who is the glory of Israel to both Jews and Gentiles. God's purposes and his promises for Israel have not ended. Here's Paul's answer at the end of the section. All Israel will be saved. And so, beloved, if you're God's children, I don't even have to ask this question, right? How many of us want Jesus to come again? We long for that day. If you want to see this promise fulfilled, all Israel saved. If you want to see Christ come again, proclaim Christ to Jews and Gentiles alike. So this promise can be fulfilled. Let's be prayerful. Let's be intentional. Let's be proactive. Let us give generously to the spread of the gospel among the Jews. And let us sow generously wherever we are, giving thanks to God for his mercy, for his promises that never fail. I want to let my older brother close this sermon for me. My older brother, Ted, lives out in Colorado, and we were texting this week. And... And this topic must have been on his mind after the recent attack on Israel. And he, and he texted me this. He referenced Psalm 83.4, which says this. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. And then he said this. The enemies of God want to wipe out Israel as a nation. Truly, as God has chosen to reveal his glory and salvation through the Jewish people, the goal really is to wipe out God. And has been since the fall of man and God's goodness to the Jewish people. But no. God reigns. And always will as he is accomplishing his good great will. What rightfully belongs to God will never be taken from him. Amen. Amen. And then my brother said he was thinking of this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints that we have seen in Romans chapter 8. And he says this is the higher thought. That what rightfully belongs to God by his purchasing of us through his son. What rightfully belongs to God by his purchasing of, of us will never be taken from him. Not by the intention of man's heart. Not by Satan the accuser. Not by anything. Amen. 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 Amen.